Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Independent Animation, podcast brought to you by Squiggly Online Animation Magazine. I'm Ben Mitchell, Squiggly Managing Director and author of the Squiggly book, Independent Animation, Developing, Producing and Distributing Your Animated Films, for which this podcast serves as a kind of supplemental strand. Generally speaking, the idea is to expand on the main areas of the book, to build on some of the case studies or update folks on some of the filmmakers who are involved in it. This episode, I have to say, is one I've put together with a pretty heavy heart, and most of you who've got to the point of playing it, I'm sure can tell why, as its main subject, the fantastic and prolific artist Rosto, is no longer with us. He passed away earlier this year in March, which came as an enormous and quite palpable blow to the animation community, and with good reason. He was very much larger than life in many respects, not least of which his creative body of work, which were he still with us, I have no doubt would have continued to outdo itself. He did bring up several times a magnum opus he had in him, a sort of long-form feature project that would bring a lot of his ideas together, which is something that I think would have absolutely turned the animation world upside down had he had the chance to make it. I first met Rosto fleetingly at Annecy about six years ago, and he was there with his film Lonely Bones, the calling card for which doubled rather fittingly as a drinks coaster. And a couple of years later, shortly after completing the follow-up film Splinter Time, the lovely folks over at Click in Amsterdam helped us get in touch, and we had our first proper interview, some of which went into episode 48 of the regular Squiggly Animation podcast, as well as the book. And we got on extremely well from the get-go. He was just one of those people that exudes enthusiasm and warmth, and that he was so immediately open about discussing his work and his methods and the journey he'd been on to get to where he was now absolutely made my evening, and that was always the way every time we spoke. And outside of any scenario in which I was profiling his work or interviewing him, he was also just incredibly personable and generous and a real pleasure to be around. So back when we first had him on, we did speak at some length about his work and my overall fandom of it. So for this as a sort of recap, I've dug out how I introduce his work in the book. Uh, So here it is. The mixed media roots of Rosto's highly complex artistic universe can be traced, at least visually, to his online web series Mind My Gap, which takes the form of a multimedia graphic novel detailing the troubled journeys of Diddy Bob and Buddy Bob, best friends and presenters of the fictional television show Living Interior. The story begins in a 1998 flash-animated webisode Map One Highway, which sees Diddy Bob on a mysterious road journey having left his life and Buddy Bob behind for reasons unknown. Set to mostly still illustrations and rudimentary animated sequences, the narration and dialogue are unforgiving, at times coyly self-aware of their impenetrability, yet the story is absorbing enough to entice the viewer into attempting to fathom its universe. The saga concludes 15 years later in 2013 with the two-part full-blown live-action CG metaphysical epic Map 1313 and Episode 1313, Episodes 25 and 26 of Mind My Gap, respectively. These two concluding chapters are best known on the animation festival circuit as the single piece Lonely Bones, itself the second part of a parallel series of short films. So, uh, if you're confused, which would be fair enough, uh, basically there's an overlap 
of where the Mind My Gap series ends and what turned out to be his final project, the The Wreckers Tetralogy, begins. Uh, the Tetralogy is made up of four Rosto films featuring a spectral incarnation of his one-time band The Wreckers, renamed The Wreckers. The four films aren't quite music videos. In truth, they're a great deal more than that. However, they each have a Wreckers song at their core, no Place Like Home, Lonely Bone, Splinter Time, and most recently, Reruns. I featured some of these as part of the Squiggly podcast specials, Animation Composed. Uh, if you listen to those, you'll know in song form they're comparatively straightforward. But within the context of the films, the music is much more elaborately presented, sometimes swallowed up by lavish orchestrations and soundscapes that go perfectly with the wonderful dream logic of it all. And that, to me, is probably what captivated me the most, is how much the work so effectively had a handle on the dream state, which is very rarely pulled off well. Uh, Rosto was a master at this, and as the films continued and became more extravagant, this mastery continued to grow. Uh, about a year ago, I proposed several topics to write about for Marimo magazine, which is a relatively new print-based animation magazine, with which our own Laura Beth Cowley is heavily involved. Their second issue they were preparing at the time was themed Phantasmagoria, and Rosto was one of the first names to spring to mind, especially as he just concluded reruns, a film in which memory and dreams and personal demons all congregate in one last hurrah. When I called Rosto to chat about it for the magazine, it had just won at Claremont Ferrand and would have an incredible festival run ahead of it, both as a standalone film and as part of the Tetralogy as a whole. Although we quite frequently emailed, this turned out, sadly, to be our last actual conversation, and as with all of them, it was quite lengthy and frequently off-topic, but within it was a sizable interview segment on this final film. The piece as printed in Marimo is relatively brief at only a few hundred words, and it did strike me as a bit of a shame that there was so much that had to be jettisoned. So with the blessing of Rosto's family and his creative collaborators at Auteur de Minuit, I'm glad and sad to be able to bring you our last interview. And I hope for those who've seen reruns, it will prove enlightening. And for those who haven't, or maybe haven't yet come across his work altogether, it might get you interested in checking it out. Whichever way, this is my chat with Rosto about his film Reruns. My dream city? Well, it's like a sunken maze of memories. Always the same, but different every time. Yes, Blondie over here is me. I can still become whoever I want when I grow up. At that age, growing old just meant growing. And growing. And growing. And growing. Until you are really old. When did you finally finish this off then? That was November, December-ish. You know, it's always hard to tell when, when you're finished, finished. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that uh, when you're when you're doing the DCP? Mm. Is that when you're doing the premiere? Is that when you're doing the world premiere? I'm never sure, you know, this is always one of the downsides of the filmmaking business. It always seems to fizzle out at the end, uh, like a candle in the wind, Elton John would say. Um, you know, where, where when you're doing a performance with a band or, or so, it always sort of ends, 
ends with the big bang at the end, and then you know it's over. Um, with the film, uh, there are so many steps, you know, it, it just sort of, there's the big bang at the beginning, and then there's the big crunch at the end. Mm. And I'm never really sure when to get completely shit-faced, because <laughs> I finished the film, because uh, there's always, the, I mean, in a way, I'm still not done, because, you know, production-wise, we are still wrapping up the, the budgets and, and, and all that. So uh, it, it's always a bit foggy. Yeah. But I think it's fair to say that it was, uh, I think in December we had a cast and crew premiere. So that's, I, I guess that's a good point to say, like, okay, we finished the film. Excellent. It already um, went to Claremont Fairand, which is. Yes, great. Claremont was awesome because uh, not only was reruns in competition there, <clears throat> and it actually picked up a prize. Which is fantastic for a world premiere. It also they also screened the Tetralogy program in Clermont-Ferrand, and then a few weeks later, exactly the same thing happened in Tampere, in Finland. So that was great because we were a bit scared, mm. you know, with the Tetralogy out, that uh, festivals might uh, have the Tetralogy but not reruns necessarily, and that reruns would not get its own life like the other three did. Mm-hmm. So, but that was uh, that was great. Yeah, Clermont is always great anyway. Yeah. So to sort of go back to um, the beginning again, it would be great to sort of get uh, a sort of brief history, I guess, of the records, the band, and how that ultimately became incorporated into this giant project. Sure. Cool. Sure, sure. So, you know, the funny thing is, uh, I'm not sure if I told you this or whether it became clear from one of the press releases, but the Tetralogy is also in Clement Film, for example, they screened the whole tetralogy but then also with an accompanying uh documentary uh about the the whole records history basically so the 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 bands the music the films which is also quite cool Uh, and i expect it looks like it will actually get the whole program like that we'll get a theatrical run in uh in france uh next year so that's kind of awesome and it, it shows, you know, the guys who made that, that documentary, they did a really good job in of summarizing the whole history because I, I usually, you know, need a lot of time to explain it because it's so branched out and so complicated in a way that I, uh, I always end up, you know, having this very confusing rant about uh, the last 25 years. And in this 20-minute documentary, the guys actually really managed to, uh, to give an overview of uh, of those 25 years because it was this year 25 years the the group started in 1993 and originally it was not a serious project at all it was basically just me and a bunch of friends getting together playing uh more or less noisy punk versions of our favorite songs and that whole thing got a little bit more serious after a while because we really enjoyed playing together and it was you know, it was like being in a band, especially at the beginning, is, is always great because you're so fully dedicated to each other and, uh, and in love with each other in a way that we, uh, we became more serious and I started to write all these songs. And there was a very loose concept uh, about uh, traveling, landscapes, crossroads, the devil. And uh, it was all very intuitive. I had no clue what it was about really. Uh, but I just sort of, you know, it was a stream of consciousness in a way. So a few years later, basically, we ran out of steam as a group. You know, that, that does happen. 
uh, unfortunately to most bands that, that does happen. You know, we hardly uh, had done anything seriously in the, in the big bad world of rock and roll. And we were already running out of steam. But I still had all these amazing songs. Um, so I, um, I basically decided for myself to start interpreting these songs. And uh, I discovered all these characters and all these stories. And that was the start of my online graphic novel, Mind My Gap, which was basically, again, very intuitive. I hardly knew what was going to happen, and certainly not how it was going to end. But I was interpreting these songs one by one, you know, landscape after landscape. And um, since it was the beginning of the internet, the early days, um, it very quickly got a, its own following, which gave me a lot of confidence. Um, and I moved on to making films, short films, basically, um, that were all part of that same universe, sometimes even just episodes um, that I made into short films. And that uh, also meant another boost in, in my career and, and you know, the interest in my work. And I, I suddenly discovered that uh, there were people out there who were interested in my stuff, which I was not so confident about before that. So that whole My, my Gap universe basically started growing very fast and um, became a very interesting place for me to fully dedicate myself to. I, I stopped basically doing commissioned work and other kinds of work. I started to work only on these, these my, my Gap projects. And the music was always there as the soundtrack of these, these Flash episodes, but also the films. And then at one point I decided to breathe new life into the, the old records by um, making characters uh, instead of band members. You know, the characters are all based on the original uh, group members. It's the four guys, but in a way, they sort of represent the spirit of these guys. Uh, and I changed the name from The Records to The Records because it was almost like an uber version, you know, an immortal version of the original group. This group couldn't die. And although the guys were always involved in the studio re recordings of the songs, uh, they could not leave the band anymore. You know, like we literally had those discussions over the years when... One of them got tired a little bit of the whole thing and sort of felt like, yeah, I'm thinking maybe I should stop. And we always told these guys that, you know, that it's impossible to stop uh, because, you know, it's, it's a project anyway. There, there will be maybe periods of time where you will be less involved, but um, it's impossible to stop. And over the years, in total, it took about almost 15 years. I recorded all those, uh, what I call songs from my gap in the studio. And that has now resulted in uh, a double album, which is yet unreleased. And then at one point, I wondered like, okay, how can I play this music? How can I introduce the music to uh, an audience? Because there was no performing group. You know, every time when I spoke to a record label or whatever, no matter how enthusiastic they were, they said like, well, yeah, there, if there's no group playing, then there's no way for us to uh, promote the, the music. So that always... Uh, but that never brought me anything. So then I decided at one point, like, hold on, I could make visualizations of the songs. I could make my own Fantasia. And instead of using classical pieces that I animate and show you what they look like to me, I can uh, I choose my own uh, rock and roll songs. And I, uh, I make visual interpretations of those. And that was the start of the Tetralogy. It started in 2008 with uh, No Place Like Home. 
And then later I did uh, Lonely Bones and Splinter Time. And now uh, I finished reruns, which finishes the tetralogy. And the tetralogy was a little bit of a game that I played with myself because I knew basically from the start that it will be a series of four. But like with Mike My Gap, I enjoy not going, not knowing where it's going to go. So I only had a few rules. You know, one rule was that it should be based on a song. So every single film has the title of a song. Another rule was that the characters of the records have to be in there somewhere, somehow. Uh, you know, in Splinter Time, for example, they play lead parts. But in Lonely Bones, they are just sort of visible in the background somewhere. So they are always there. And the other rule was that every film sort of had to start where the previous one ended. So usually when I was finishing a film, I already had little ideas about how the next film was going to start. But no more than that. And, and that sort of kept me awake, you know, that kept me sharp and um, inspired instead of feeling that I was forcing myself to finish this. It was always interesting and exciting to see what was going to happen next. So with uh, the ending of Splinter Time, where it starts to rain like hell, I already knew when we were finishing Splinter Time that my next film was going to start with the whole world flooded, basically, and the spirits of the wreckers hovering over the surface because uh, the whole world was gone. And uh, it was only just memories and dreams on, on the bottom of this endless ocean. And that was the start for reruns. Hmm. So yeah, the um, the subject matter in general, and it sort of began with the graphic novel and this sort of stayed that way in a sense. It's always been kind of like hypnagogic, sort of between being awake and being asleep. Right. And I found that this one in particular, like it was really resonant with me because it, like I, I, I think it's quite common, but I have a recurring dream where I'm back in school and usually there's something, there's an exam pending or there's some school play I'm in that I don't know my lines for or I haven't revised for a test or whatever it is, but I'm my age now and everything I've done in the last 15 years doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> All of a sudden these stupid things are now really important again. Yeah. And that was something that kind of captures you as you watch it, that sort of very particular thing that you get from certain dreams, certain regressions well, the, i guess the thing is the thing is in reruns you know in a way it is my most autobiographic film because mm -hmm. all these dreams are true you know and the dream city the way it is explained explained at the beginning of the film uh, once we start descending that dream city that's also true that's literally me telling you that i have this dream city that i visit often and it's uh, it seems to be a thing with a mind of its own you know, and, and my high school and my studio and my grandmother's room, you know, all these things are really there. And I had to make a selection of dreams, especially the ones that are connected also to memory, uh, because most of our dreams are connected to memories, but some of them in such an oblique way that you don't recognize it anymore. But I, I, I literally wanted to show you pieces of my dream city and invite you into that world. So the, the exam thing, for example, is I also have that dream regularly, you know, that I, that I visit my uh, high school again, and then suddenly uh, they tell me that everything that I've earned over the course of my life, I did not uh, deserve it because I never actually finished my exams properly. 
and it's it's usually usually ge- geography that I have to do in my dreams. <laughs> in, 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 in the film, I made it history. Although I think I scrapped the line in the script. It, it's he calls it a history exam because I thought that was kind of ironic since it is all about memories and you know the history of your life and therefore the future of your life. Mm. That he has to actually do that exam, but that's a minor detail. But yes, they, these are all dreams, and the interesting thing is that as you get older. I thought they became more mundane, uh, which is in a way is also true. You know, the growing older dream, for example, at the beginning of the film, which is also a real dream that I've had when I was little, and that they slowly turn into walking skeletons because I did not know. Uh, you know, the only thing that I knew was that, that we grow. We grow, we grow, because you're five years old and that's all you do. And the only image that I had of really old people were that they looked like skeletons. So I imagined that really old people were these these gigantic skeletons. Mm. And I, I also remember being quite scared because we were living in a flat building and I was sitting at the balcony. And I was scared that maybe at one point one of these skeletons would pass by and, and could look over the balcony and find me there. Mm. But later dreams, you know, when I, as I get older, they become more mundane. And strangely enough, they become more based on anxiety. It's basically all anxiety dreams, you know, the... The exam anxiety, the performance anxiety. It's kind of strange because I don't really consider myself an anxious person, but apparently I um, I have some deeper um, angsts, angsts going on. And it's, uh, it's good to hear that I'm not alone, Ben. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, in particular, also what carries through in the films through just the way the characters interact and their turns of phrase and the quality of movement they're also all very on point as far as like how we do exist in dreams. And was there any kind of research or like tests or a process to kind of capture that particular quality when you're coming up with the style? Yes and no. Um, it's, it's a, it's a very difficult question because, you know, we have so many different techniques, uh, involved in this, in this film and every shot basically has its own war stories. You know, like it, it was a real complicated thing to pull off. And um, originally, I also intended it to be very different. Um, originally, I intended it to do it with uh, puppets underwater. And um, I had this whole plan how I could work with uh, what they call rod puppets, which is not an animated, but, but basically puppeteered, uh, and to shoot that in an aquarium and still work with things like digital facial replacement. Mm. But this was basically triggered by the by the feeling that, oh, the idea that puppets don't need to breathe underwater, right? Mm. So we could basically shoot everything really underwater and have all these beautiful watery movements. And um, I, I also really enjoyed the prospect of, of working with puppets again and shooting in that way as well, you know, because most of my shoots, once we are in production, it's like, it's like war. You're in the trenches, basically, and you're fighting war. And there's always this tremendous sense of urgency, you know, because everything is so expensive. Everyone's constantly looking at the clock and you, you have to score. And this whole idea of being in a little attic with an aquarium and some puppets and be able to fuck around with it until you're happy sounded like bliss to me. And then the puppet maker, I found a fantastic puppet builder who was working at the time on Wes Anderson's uh, Isle of Dogs, but she 
said that she was so sad when I actually came to visit them for the Monster of Nyx. And she felt that, so this is in 2010 probably, or nine. And she always felt that she had messed that up because I, I was gone before she could reply to my questions and, and all that. And I had moved on and done other things. And she really wanted to work on one of my films. So she actually said, that she would find a replacement for the, the Wes Anderson project and, and come to Amsterdam to work on this one. So I felt like, wow, mm. that's commitment. You know, that's fantastic. Of course, I also really admired her work. And she was the clever one saying, like, maybe we should do a test before we start. And you have to imagine by now the whole production is being set up. You know, the pipelines are being uh, designed. People are being hired almost at least you're finding the team and all that stuff and then we did a test and to keep a very sad and long story very short the results were so disappointing yeah. of the, the the puppets on the water it was basically such a cluster post-production wise with all the the rods you know like although the rods are tiny very thin if you shoot macro these are still enormous beams and then four of them sort of sticking into your character at one point i realized that we, we would be painting more than shooting, actually. Mm. So that was the moment where I had to pull the plug on that project, and we basically had three weeks to come up with a whole new plan. And this is where, uh, the, the way we shot reruns now, where that was born, basically, out of necessity. And, and that is often the case. You know, like half of, of the vision that you see is artistic, is intentional, and comes from a vision. The other half what you see in, in our type of films, right? Where budget is always uh, the, the, the bottleneck, basically. The other half was uh, forced by reality. Mm. And uh, you just sort of had to, had to work with it. Yeah. Of course, I loved to see these different techniques coming together and therefore creating an even more lucid dream kind of thing, you know, especially with those watery movements, because we did shoot some live action. Uh, there's two characters who are, no, three characters who are shot completely dry for wet, uh, sort of assuming those uh, those watery movements, shooting uh, three times as, as fast, basically, to get all the slow motion movements, but also being in wires and moving on a ramp. So gravity is always out of whack and stuff like that. And combining that with the other more digital parts, you know, creates this really odd collage almost mm. that to me at least resembles very much the, the dream world. You know, we also didn't want the real underwater look uh, with, you know, bubbles and stuff like that. I did, didn't want that. I just wanted it to be very thick air, mm. exactly the way how it is in my dreams. You know, in dreams we move, in a more awkward way, we find it difficult to run, for example. And uh, and when I fly, and I know that this is very personal because everyone flies in their own ways in dreams, but when I fly, I actually swim. I, I have to sort of jump up and swim my way up into the sky. I can feel the air until I'm high enough, and then I, I'm sort of stable and I can stay horizontal. Hmm. So the water is definitely a thing that is, for me, uh, a crucial part of the whole dream experience. Hmm. Another thing I know that you and me have talked about, but to sort of maybe go through again what you mentioned about the digital facial animation, be good to sort of talk a little bit about where that visual idea came from and what exactly goes into it. Where the idea came from? Um, God, I don't know. I don't know. I have been um, working with head replacements 
for as long as I can remember, basically. Mm. But it's it always returns in my films in a slightly different way than how I've done it before. At one point, you know, Splinter Time, for example, we started to work with projection techniques because the actors were wearing these re- these these prosthetic masks. But then I didn't want them to behave like masks, which is completely dead. I actually wanted them to be alive, you know, so they are actually blinking and they are breathing and they are doing all these things. So we had this very complicated technique where the masks were uh, tracked and traced and then basically flattened, digitally flattened again, uh, and then given to animators who put facial expressions into those masks and then using the video signal, basically, to project it back on the footage, but now with the facial animation uh, added. So you're using all the real live qualities of the masks, which is you know reflections and uh, specular lights and shadows and all these things. But at the same time, the shape is being, uh, in, in a 3D space, is being uh, animated. That was very, very uh, work-intensive and elaborate for reruns what we wanted to do with at least two generations because basically you know it's my character that we see in several generations five years old and then 20 years old 30 years old 40 years old and then in the end dead so the 20 year old and the 30 year old that's the the character you might remember who also encounters the band in the in the backstage uh, room uh-huh. this character had hair which i unfortunately don't have anymore but we wanted to shoot the hair really underwater again because, you know, CG is great, but there's a few things that we cannot still do perfectly, and one of them is hair. So what we wanted to do is still shoot the heads of those characters with real hair underwater in the aquarium. So we had um, silicon heads made of those characters, scale models like, like this big, so we could move it underwater, with real hair. And then those faces were, after they were shot, those faces were tracked again and then uh, replaced with um, digital animated faces. And in this case, it was a little easier to do so because the silicon heads were 3D prints or, you know, cast from 3D prints of the digital model. So the, the match was in a way perfect. That was always in the past, that was always a bit of a problem. You know, how could we... Have, how can we, can we make the digital thing fit with the live action thing perfectly, pixel perfect? That was always quite complicated, but in this case, that was, uh, that was a plan behind it. And thanks to 3D printing, that was possible. Excellent. Again, I'm skimming over a lot of other technical difficulties and pitfalls because it's, like I said, every, every shot has its own stories. But I, I, I try to keep it brief. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So we're talking about like the film kind of being seen on its own as opposed to as part of the tetralogy. Are there any sort of like benefits of watching all four films sort of together, like as one block, would you say? Yeah, I noticed that something magical happens when you see the four of them together. Mm-hmm. It was from the start. You know, we had a cast and crew premiere, I think, in December. But this is all my teams basically and, and their plus ones getting together to see the, the finished film but also the tetralogy i we also screened the tetralogy and although most of these people have been involved in all four films and they know them all quite well uh they all agreed that something happens when you see them together you know at, at first people were a bit scared because 
every single one of them is quite intense. So they were a bit scared, like getting four of these super intense films in a row, that that would be a bit much, to say the least. But the opposite almost happened. You know, it had like an equalizing effect because you're still, with all four films, you're in the same universe and you, you get used to it. You get acquainted to it. You know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's the world where you live in for at least 45 minutes and it starts to make sense in a crazy way. You know, like, uh, I've heard so many people that day say, like, with all the previous films, no matter how much they love them, they never really fully understood them. And now they sort of did understand it. Although still not in a rational way, but in a, in an almost subconscious way, it added up. It made sense in its own, with its, within its own internal logic. Hmm. The other thing that I think this film sort of reminded me of, I think it was the, use in particular of the kind of home movie quality footage of the younger character and how that oh, it's was... Real. It's, it's actually real. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, it's, that was one of the most fascinating things of this film for me, that before we started this film, I, I had this idea that I wanted to rebuild certain places from my memories hmm. and my life. Because, you know, memories are so fluid, you know, like our memories are completely corrupt uh, because... I did a lot of research into memories, and what we found out now is that memories are definitely not carved in stone, as we used to think. Memories are, you can compare it to text files on your hard drive, and every time when you entertain this memory, even, you know, either thinking about it or talking about it, what you actually do is you open up this text file and you rewrite it and you save it on top of the other one, and the other one does not exist anymore. And you do this throughout your life. So this is why memories constantly morph and constantly change. And I realized there is such a thing as factual memories. And those are home videos and photos and stuff like that. They don't change. They are always there. So I found these uh, Super 8 reels that my dad made when, uh, when I was very little. And since my grandmother's room, you know, was is is one of those mythical places in my in my um, dream city? I actually wanted to see if I could build using modern technology, uh, build that room exactly the way it was using that Super 8 footage. Hmm. So so we found a way in the end to sort of stitch all those images together and then actually literally be able to build the chairs and the tables and the the walls and the doors in that room uh, and, and map the texture of the Super 8 footage back on those uh, on, the, on the elements in that room. So I almost felt like a, a detective in my own history, you know, like a lot of little secrets came, came to the surface suddenly when we were stitching all this together. And it was a lot more emotional as well than I was expecting it to be, to be, to be back in that place, because I literally haven't been in that. My grandmother actually died that year, 1974. So... Uh, I haven't been there since I was five years old, like I am in that footage. So the little blonde guy that you see in the first scene of that uh, of that room, that is literally me. That wow. is actually me. And the footage is uh, authentic. Hmm. It's a great sort of example of using that kind of resourcefulness, combining different approaches to the filmmaking and the characters and how they all interact like that. Yeah. It's something I found is certainly I've seen auto de Minuit in general tend to have a lot of films that sort of deal with a that kind of mixed media approach but also sort of 
not necessarily like films about dreams, but films that kind of take you to a certain place that's yep. not quite consciousness, I guess. Mm-hmm. And but you get to sort of hear like just a little bit about maybe how your relationship with them began and how that's been, uh, how it sort of affected your process, if at all. We've known each other. I mean, I consider myself a blessed dude because uh, we more or less grew up together. Nicholas Schmerkin and I, because when one of my first films, uh, Anglo Billy Feverson, uh, did so well in the, the, the festivals worldwide, Nicholas was one of the people who really noticed it, and he he still claims, especially when we're drunk and uh, and we're celebrating our our friendship, he uh, tends to tell me that that was actually one of the films that got him started into the business. Because it was one of those first films, you know, that was using digital techniques and stuff like that, and also in a way that you haven't hadn't seen before. However, we did not work together immediately because I was with my own company. I was uh, producing the films, but also distributing it myself. It was later, after a few years, we met again. Uh, with with uh, John and Tomberry, the follow-up for Anglo Billy Peterson. And we started to talk more about maybe collaborating a little bit as well. And then uh, when I was tired of doing distribution of, of my films, the Otudi Minui basically took over. They started to do distribu- distribution of all my work, after Jonah, this is. And then we started talking about maybe co-producing The Monster of Nyx. And from that moment on, we became more and more close. And I discovered that although I've never been lucky in my own country with finding a producer, this is why I started my own production company. I did find a brother from another mother abroad. And that was Nicholas. You know, like we literally sort of grew together while his company was growing. My career was doing fine as well. And all the beautiful ladies that work for him at the at the offices, you know, they became like my sisters in Paris. And ever since, every project that I do, you know, Nicolas is almost involved from the start and is always there as, as one of my perfect advisors because he knows me so well and he knows my universe so well. Every filmmaker knows as soon as you start working on a project, you, although it is all so personal and it is so much your stuff coming from your uh, the, the very fabric of your existence, you you will get lost. You will get lost. And fortunately, I have people like Nicholas always there to remind me of my original intentions and, and help me stay on track right up to the very end. That's also why we always have share credits as editors on the, on the film as well. Uh, there have been some films where he made really earth-shattering decisions editing-wise you know, getting rid of entire scenes, for example, that I would never have done myself, you know, like even when he mentions it, every time when he mentions something like that, I first need two days to throw my toys until I realize that maybe he has a point. And he actually usually helps me a lot to improve the work right up to the very end. He's a unique character, you know, and as a producer, he really is what I always thought a producer is supposed to do, although in reality, they never do, you know, like... I would say 99, 99.9% of producers don't do all the stuff that I think they should do. Uh, and Nicholas is always totally hands-on. Uh, I could call him in the middle of the night. And although I know he's working on you know, 50 other projects, 
he still will remember, you know, scene 33 when I want to talk with him about it in the middle of the night and he will be able to help me. Mm. It's amazing. I don't know how he does it. His brain is a very, very scary place. But as a producer, it's perfect. Excellent. That was a fantastic Rusto. No longer with us, but as an artist, he sure as hell made his time on this earth count. And you can see much of his earlier work via the Auteur de Minuit YouTube channel, Auteur is spelled A-U-T-O-U-R. Also his websites, rostoad.com and mindmygap.com, are still active. I believe his longer form film, The Monster of Nyx, may also still be able to buy on DVD. Uh, at the very least, there's a website for it at monsterofnyx.com. A little while ago, I was also very honoured to get to preview and consult on another project of his, a physical graphic novel version of the My My Gap story. That is just tremendous, and Knockwood, through some means or other, will one day become available also. We'll do our best here at Squiggly to keep you all apprised of any other updates or events that may come along. Thank you to Nicholas Schmerken at Auteur de Minuit, as well as Susie Templeton, and also to Adeline Martel at Marimo. You can check out the magazine at marimomag.com. And of course, we're squiggly.com, at squiggly on Twitter, at squiggly animation on Instagram, squiggly magazine on Facebook. Same old ports are cool. Until next time, zip up and let's dance to the sound of breaking glass. His watch says now, and then freezes.